Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You may be seated again. That wasn't too hard, was it? You got to stretch out a little bit sometimes. You know, stretch your legs. You get too comfortable. I look out there and you may be nodding off on me. I need you to be with me, Rick. I don't want to see anybody. Got to keep those legs stretched out. That's not the reason why. I asked you to stand so that we can honor and reverence the reading of God's word. That's so, it, it's more than that. Uh, but so, so Paul writes this letter. Uh, and it's, it's widely believed that Paul writes this epistle to his beloved brothers and sisters in the faith who make up the church uh, in the city of Philippi. Uh, he, it's believed that he writes it around A.D. 60 while imprisoned at Rome. I say it's believed because there are some varying opinions uh, on when and where it was written. Some have speculated uh, as to the time and location uh, of his writing, suggesting that he might have actually wrote while imprisoned in either Ephesus, uh, Caesarea, or some have even said he could have possibly been in Corinth when he writes this. But the evidence, uh, the evidence supports that he's writing from Rome, evidence such as Paul mentions uh, being guarded and having uh, the opportunity to evangelize the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard was headquartered in Rome. This supports the fact that he probably likely writes from Rome. Also, he mentions in chapter 4, verse 22, he mentions Caesar's household. Uh, this best suits Rome. He was given freedom to have guests while in prison and to send letters and to receive gifts while being in prison. This likely uh, is a practice. It sounds more likely to be a practice of Rome than of anywhere else. So it's, it's highly likely that he writes this epistle to the church at Philippi from Rome. Uh, Paul has, as he writes and as he, as he thinks about his beloved brothers and sisters in Philippi, he has a special affection and a bond for them that he doesn't have for maybe some of the other congregations he's affiliated with. He has a special bond and affection because 10 years earlier, it was Paul that actually planted this church in Philippi. You'll recall that the record of this church plant is recorded in Acts chapter 16. You'll remember that in Acts chapter 16, Paul and his crew were attempting to go one place, but God directed them to go over into Macedonia, into Philippi. He gave Paul a vision, and in this vision, there was a man who said, come over here, and we want you to come. And so Paul, being obedient to God, ch changes his plans and goes to Philippi, and as he arrives in Philippi and as he is laboring in Philippi and witnessing in Philippi, he plants this 
church, you'll remember that there are at least three people who make up the first converts or the first members of the church at Philippi. You remember the first person he encounters that's recorded in Scripture is a young lady by the name of Lydia. She's from Thyatira, and she's a seller of purple. He encounters her. She becomes, gets saved as she's listening to him and makes up uh, the first group of converts. Then they encounter this slave girl who's being used and abused by her masters to interpret and to do all kinds of things regarding dreams and visions. They cast the spirit out of her then, and, and she follows them and becomes one of the converts. Then they encounter, uh, they don't encounter, they're locked in prison, right? And when they're in prison, you remember the story in Acts chapter 16, uh, at midnight, right? They begin to sing praise songs, and the Bible says that God responds by seeing an earthquake, the walls and the jail cells are shaken and all the prisoners are, are released and then uh, the guard, the warden of the prison, the, the jailer he's called, comes running in and says, what must I do to be saved? And as a result, he and all of his house also become part of the first group of converts, members of uh, Philippi Bible Church. As it's planning. So that's the his, he has a long history with these people that make up the church in Philippi. In fact, this is not his first interaction with them. He's visited the church there on a few occasions, but now he's in prison and he writes to his beloved brothers and sisters there at the church in Philippi. Uh, and so then the church, as Paul is in prison, the church uh, out of concern for Paul, because they love him, they have, as he has for them, they have an affection and an affinity towards him as well, and they've gotten word that Paul is in prison. And so then what do they do? They send a leader from their congregation who is thought to have possibly been even the pastor of that congregation, a man by the name of Epaphroditus. They send him to Rome, likely, to check on Paul. Go, we, we're concerned about him. And so they send Epaphroditus to check on Paul, and not only to check on him, but to bring him some things. They send a contribution, a financial contribution to Paul. They send some other items to Paul so that uh, his time in confinement would be more comfortable. They send these items and these things for him. And while they're visiting with Paul, Epaphroditus, the record is, becomes very ill. In fact, he becomes so ill that he almost dies. Uh, and after he recovers, he recovers from his illness. Uh, and after he recovers, Paul then sends him back to Philippi with this letter that he has written for his beloved congregation there. He sends uh, Epaphroditus back there. Uh, and in this letter, Paul writes with uh, a multitude of purposes. He has varying purposes uh, that he writes this letter for. He writes it. He has these purposes in mind. He primarily writes this letter to thank them for what they've sent him and for their care and concern for him. But that's not the only reason he writes it. He also wants to assure them of his well-being. He wants to uh, reassure them that he's okay because they're concerned about him. He writes. He also addresses 
some news that he's gotten from Epaphroditus and possibly from others that there seems to be some divisions arising in the church at Philippi. He calls in particular some ladies' names that he has heard are squabbling and fighting for some reason. They're not united, but they're divided. Yodius and Syntyche, he says, remind them to remain united and to stay together. And I'm writing this letter so that you can encourage them to not be divided. Not only does he write it for that, he also writes a letter to warn them of the threat of antinomianism and the threat of the Judaizers who are trying to or uh, encourage them away from the faith. Paul has instilled the faith in them, and here it is. There always is, as we try to be faithful to God, there's always an attack from the enemy who will try to take away. So Paul warns them that this threat is, is very present, so be careful about that. Then, lastly, he writes this letter to encourage them in the Lord. Encourage them in their walk. Encourage them in the Lord. So uh, he says things like in chapter 1, as he attempts to encourage them, he says things like, I thank God for you and I pray for you because of your partnership with me in the gospel from the first day until, until now. He's encouraged. He says things like, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it or perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Encouraging them to Stay on the battlefield to, to hold on to God's unstained, uh, un, uh, to God's banner, right? He, he's encouraging them. Uh, he says things like, what has happened to me in chapter 1 uh, has happened, uh, has fallen out to the furtherance of the gospel. He says, I realize that, in, that you know that I'm in prison, and to you from the outside, it seems like a dire situation, but I like to write to you to let you know that everything is fine with me. In fact, it's going so well that I'm in the palace surrounded by the Praetorian Guard, but guess what's happened? Because they're with me 24 hours a day, and they change shifts every so often. I've had the opportunity, because of this situation, to win them to Christ, and the Word of God has spread all throughout the palace. He says that. He says, Everything is going, is going okay. Don't, don't. He, he encourages them with this. And then in chapter 2, he, he launches into this, one of my favorite passages when he says this, these words. He says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. We heard it from, a little bit of it from Dennis this morning who did a beautiful job teaching Sunday school. He referenced this very passage. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every tongue shall confess. Y'all have to excuse me. I get loud sometimes because I, I, I look back on, over what Jesus means to me. At the sound of the name, every tongue shall confess. Every knee shall bow that Jesus, that, that, that shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
So Paul says things like that. Then we get to chapter 3, and in chapter 3, verse 20, he makes a reference to them and identifies both himself and the recipients of the letter as citizens from heaven who are anxiously awaiting the return of their Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what he says. And then so we arrive in chapter 4, which is our text for today. And as we arrive in chapter 4, Paul then looks back on what he said in 3 and 20, and he says to them, uh, we are, in talking about citizens from heaven, Paul describes uh, himself with all the recipients as citizens. And then in chapter 4 in our text, he gives practical advice that will guide the spiritual formation of the citizens of heaven that he describes in 320. So that's what we are today. We, that's what we're going to talk about today, his practical advice that he gives for us. If we can substitute ourselves for the recipients of this letter uh, to the church at Philippi, those of us who are you do know that your citizenship is not here. You do know that we're just sojourners. We're pilgrims, right, passing through this barren land. And so Paul says, we are citizens from heaven, and I now want to write to you with some practical advice that will help enhance your spirituality, your connection to God, if adhere to. So he shares with them some advice. He shares the first bit of advice in verse 4 of chapter 4. And in so doing, he also reiterates the theme of the entire letter. Chapter 4, verse 4, he shares with them, reiterates the theme. Look at verse 4. I want to read it for you. It says this, finally, brothers, I'm sorry, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. The theme of this entire epistle is joy. That's what the theme is. Uh, the idea of rejoicing is found over 15 times in, the, in various forms throughout this letter. Uh, four times we see the word joy used. Eight times we see the word rejoice used. Three times we see the word glad used. The theme is joy, and joy, if you didn't know, is a little deeper than happiness. It's, it's a little deeper. It goes a little deeper than that. Happiness can be impacted by circumstances, right? It, it, it can be fleeting. It, it can leave you if your circumstances are not happy, right? It, it, everybody thought, I, want to be, I just want to be happy. No, I'd like to have joy. Because the joy I have, somebody help me. It's all right to talk back. I know we're not used to it, but y'all, you know, it's all right. To, it, the joy I have, the world didn't give it to me. And the world, that's different than happiness because happiness requires that something is happening. And when there is nothing that's happening, then I'm not happy. But when I have joy, you are nobody else. I don't care what kind of emails you send me. Somebody should have laughed. That was, I don't care what kind of text messages I get or what kind of rumors there are spread about me. Or I, the joy I have. I'm not saying any of that has happened. I'm just saying if it does. 
So just know, just know I got thick skin. Not only do, is my skin thick, I've got joy down on the inside. Because when I think about the goodness of God and all that he's done for me, my soul cries out. Hallelujah. That's joy. That means that even on a bad day, joy will carry me through. So Paul's theme is joy. Joy emanates from within and can withstand difficult times. When joy is present, it exists even in the midst of suffering. Even in the midst of suffering, if you've got joy, it will carry you through. Paul, who writes this epistle, is in prison, but demonstrated joy in the midst of his situation. He chooses to be inspirational while facing adversity. So, so watch this. A lot of us uh, can be inspirational after the adversity is over, right? So we look back and say, let me tell you what I went through, right? But how do you do in the middle of it? How, how inspiration, Paul writes to a people who are themselves also suffering and going through, but Paul is in prison at the time facing all kinds of adversity, and he finds it within himself to inspire. Some, some of us can only inspire when the sun is shining. We have, to, we have to be committed to be inspirational even on rainy days, even when it's difficult. And so Paul writes this and encourages them uh, to not wait until after the trial is over, but to be an encourager even in the midst of it. Uh, as Paul writes, he faces mob, things like mob violence, imprisonment, personal stress, long detention under the palace guards. Yet he encourages the Philippian believers who were facing persecution and threat themselves uh, to rejoice in the Lord always. That's what he says. It's in the text. Always, he says. That means at all times rejoice. And just in case there were those who resisted rejoicing in a time of suffering, he repeats the command. He says, again, I say, rejoice, right? It's important. So he says to them, first thing, rejoice. Then in verse 5, he says, this also do, be gentle. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. This word reasonableness is, a, is translated gentleness. Gentleness is kindness, it's courtesy, it's tenderness, it's respect. And so Paul writes to them and says, if you're going to take any advice from me about your spiritual life and how to enhance that and enhance your walk with God, first of all, uh, you should uh, be rejoice, then be gentle. Gentleness. Paul suggests that a constant, genuine state of joy and rejoicing produces gentleness to everyone. If you, in, if, you, if you rejoice, then it's going to show itself as, as gentleness to all people. Uh, Peter says something about it. He says, but sanctify the Lord in your heart always. In 1 Peter 3.15, 
Be prepared to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason for the hope that is within you with gentleness and with respect. And then Aristotle has an interesting quote about gentleness. He says that the gentle person, the gentle person, they are the ones who by choice and habit do what is equitable and who does not stand on his rights unduly but is content to receive a smaller share although he has the law on his side. Paul writes, be joyous, be gentle. Then in verses 6 and 7, he issues this warning in 6 and 7. He says this. He says, anxiety aborts peace and potential. Anxiety. He's, he's taking us to, to, to this place of excellence, right? And he says, if you're going to arrive there, be aware and be warned that anxiety can destroy everything that God wants to do in you. It will destroy your peace. It will take away your potential. So he gives us in 6 and 7 a remedy for anxiety, doesn't he? Because what does he say? He says, be anxious for nothing. You see it, right? But by everything with prayer and supplication, my rendition may be a little bit different because I learned it a different way, but it's one of my favorite ones. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And he says, here is how you eradicate anxiety, the peace of God that passeth all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Isn't that all right? He says, that is how you deal with anxiety. You got to pray about it. In all things, pray about it. And when you pray, be sure before you ask for anything. Right? He says, he says watch this. He, he, he describes prayer in three ways. He says, pray. Let your prayer, you pray. Your requests be made known to God. And supplicate, he said, all of those things, though, before you do any of that or while you're doing that, make sure you do it with thanksgiving. And if you do, anxiety will be destroyed in your life rather than anxiety destroying you. Now we make it to 8 and 9. And in 8 and 9, he brings this idea of excellence home. In 8 and 9, he closes his advice in verses 8 and 9 discussing excellence. Verses 8 and 9. In verse 8, uh, he seems to say in verse 8, think of excellence. Think of excellence. Uh, he, he does it. He, Paul defines excellence in verse 8 by using six adjectives. He says this. He says, whatever is true. He's defining and describing what excellence is. He says, whatever is true. This, this is the opposite of dishonesty, the opposite of unreliability. Whatever is true. Whatever is honorable, it's dignified, worthy of respect. Whatever is just, it conforms to God's standards. Whatever is pure, whatever is wholesome, he says, purity is wholesomeness, not mixed with moral impurity. He says, I'm helping you to understand what excellence looks like. Whatever is commendable, that is positive and constructive rather than negative and destructive. Those are the, the definitions that Paul gives by way of these six adjectives that help us better understand what excellence is all about. He says to have a chance at achieving excellence, one must think on these things, right? Mind must be consumed not with the 
opposite of these things, but with these things, right? He says, think on these things. If there's a chance to achieve excellence, can, you can't just, though, think of excellence. He closes at the end of this passage by advising them that you can't just think on it. You must also, in verse 9, practice excellence. Not just think on excellence, but the, the thought must be translated into action, right? So he says this in verse 9. He says, uh, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. He says this. He says, you've learned it because you've been around me. And you've picked up on some things that I've done. You've learned it. I've taught you some things by, by my teaching, by, by what I've said, by what I've tried to communicate to you. You've learned those things. You've received those things. Not only that, this is the reason why our reputation is so important. He says, you've heard some things about me, right, but from other people. I know, I know we, don't, we, we say, I don't care what people think about me. Right. That, that, that's what we, and I don't I don't really. But but that we do have a responsibility to make sure that our reputation is commendable in the community. And so Paul says, you've heard some things about me that I didn't tell you. You've learned some things about me that I didn't teach you. That, that, there's a good there, there's a good reputation associated with that. He says those things that you've learned, you've received, you've heard. But here it is those things you've seen, those things that you've actually witnessed. It's one thing to talk the talk, right? We have to be sure to what he says. All of those things that you have seen, that you've learned, that you've heard, all of that that you've uh, heard about me, then take those things and do them. Practice those things. And that is how excellence is achieved. He says, do it. Don't just think about it, but do it. Here are some other verses on excellence. In Ecclesiastes 9.10, Solomon, who is believed to be the writer, says this. He says, whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave where you're going. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, the Sermon on the Mount, he says this to us and to those that were listening to them then, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Colossians 3, 23, Paul writes, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Simply put, we are daily performing for an audience of one. Here it is. You're not so so you're not performing or doing whatever you're doing to impress me. And I'm not doing what I'm doing to impress you. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about right now. I'm talking about in life in general, right? We're not trying to impress people. Jesus says, let your light so shine so that people will see it, but you don't get the glory for it. Because our audience is an audience of one, and that audience that we have is God. We do what we do for his glory. 
Uh, there was a little boy who played football on a team as he was young growing up. And he was always, Brother Chris, he was always a goof-off. He never practiced hard. He never, he never committed himself. He never did anything that gave him, that would give him, that would be worthy enough for him to even get on the field. He was just on the team. He was just, he was just there, taking up space, taking up a roster spot. He didn't commit himself. He didn't do anything. Then, as he, as he made his way through his time of playing football, he got to what would be his last game of his senior year. In the last game of his senior year, all, he played running back. All the running backs in front of him got hurt. And so the coach called his name and said, it's time for you to get in the game. And so he goes in the game, and they're not expecting much of him at all because they have been around him for all of his life, and they know he is not going to do anything. But we got to put somebody in there. So they call his name. They put him in the game. And when he gets in the game, he plays like a wild man. And they're all amazed, wondering, what in the world? What's going on? How is he at? What? Where is this being? Played like a wild man. Played running back like no running back had ever played before. Running over, looked like Earl Campbell. <laughs> so the players and the coaches are wondering what's gotten into him. So after the game, they pull him to the side. And they say, what in the world got in? We've never seen this in you in all the years you played football. What, where did this come from? He said, well, let me just tell you. My dad, who was blind, died yesterday. And this is the first day he's ever been able to see me play. He was performing for an audience of one. His dad, he knew for the first time, was, be, was able to watch him, and he gave it all he had. And I say all that to say this. We have to know that our father who's never been blind, is watching us. And he desires excellence in everything we do. We're going to now invite you to come. If there'll be one here. I have these cards up here today. We need, if you, if you have a desire to be a member of, well, first of all, not, let's, let's put that, Let's save that for, for next. First thing is, if you have a desire to come and be a part of the family of God, we want to extend to you the opportunity now to come. Give your heart to Christ. If you're here this morning and you've never done it. Let me say this about that. We want this to be a time uh, and an opportunity um, for whoever may have a desire to, to uh, give their life to Christ. So it's a sacred time. Someone may have been wrestling with this decision for a long time. And something that happened today or something that someone said to you today may have triggered in you that this is the day. We want to give you that opportunity to come and to give your life to Christ now. Just a few minutes. We're going to extend that invitation.
then secondly, you may already know Jesus and you've been visited. You may have not yet decided to be a part of what we're doing and you may have decided to do so. We want to also, if you've decided to do so, we want to give you the opportunity to, to come and to be a member of Bethel Hope. And to do that, you need one of these cards. So if anyone would like to do that, we're going to encourage you to come and get one of these and to go through that process. It's not like it's, a, it's I say process. It's not, it's not anything intimidating. We want to encourage you to do that as well. So these cards I have, if you'd like to do that, please do that as well. And you can see me after, or you can grab one out front if you like to do that after we are done. And with that, then, we're going to prepare to be dismissed. Uh, don't forget all the announcements that were made. Um, Easter services and things that are going on for Easter. Um, also, the plea for volunteers. We need, we need as many volunteers as we can get uh, for all of the various teams that we have. Don't forget that. All right, let's, let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you. We thank you for your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you for your power, your presence, for your plan that you have for us. We just pray that uh, you would equip us to follow your plan. We thank you. Now, we pray that uh, you would go with us as we prepare to depart from this place. Go ahead of us. Make the way clear. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.